As we continue to make our way through the Gospel of John, the sermon this morning is based on John 14, verses 15 through 31. I'll ask you to turn there either in your Bibles or in your worship guides. And as you do so, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We've been in a long section of the Gospel of John that is known as the Upper Room Discourse, which actually ends with the ending of the passage that we read today. John unpacks for us a very long dialogue that happens on the night of the Last Supper with the disciples where Jesus does a great deal of teaching. And what John emphasizes in the course of that upper room discourse is Jesus' disclosure that he's leaving. I'm departing. I'm going to be going away. And the scene that you've been experiencing is going to change significantly. And he begins to help the disciples wrestle with what that means as they're astonished, as they're afraid as they don't under, struggle to understand why Jesus would leave them and what it means for them in his absence and what he's talking about. And here, Jesus has moved through some comfort, and he's drawing near to the promise of the Spirit. But one of the main things on the table is, what are you going to do, disciples, in my absence? In other words, Jesus is giving them instruction on how they are to behave in his absence, what they're supposed to do. I've confessed to you before that in my house, when Jennifer and the kids go away, uh, things will tend, entropy will take over, and things will go to an increasing order of chaos. And we have a very nice arrangement that toward, you know, when Jennifer hits the road or when she's about two hours from home, she texts me, and then I proceed to return the house to a state of order to welcome her home so that nothing has changed. 
right? But her departure, her absence affects aspects of my behavior, like getting all the dishes done or making the bed. And um, perhaps you, in the absence of a spouse or someone you live with, in their departure, your behavior begins to change or be affected. And that's just a small reflection on... I'm starting to think about what would it mean, you know, for three years you've been traveling with Jesus, you've been ministering with him, you've been seeing him in action. And now all of a sudden he says, listen, I'm going away. You can't come where I'm going to. You're going to be left alone. Say, well, what, what is that going to look like? A, why would you do that? B, what in the world are we supposed to do? Jesus begins to really lay that on the table. What are you supposed to do in the absence of Jesus? Now, we connect with that because Jesus is not returned physically. He's not present in our midst, and sometimes he feels incredibly distant from us. And so in the midst of that separation, well, yes, we have the Spirit. What are you supposed to be doing? I don't think much has changed between the instructions that are delivered to the disciples in this setting and the instructions that are on hand for us. So let's explore what those instructions are. John has an incredible emphasis in our passage today, an emphasis that is so important to him that he will reiterate it three times in the positive and once in the negative. Look at verse 15 with me. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. In verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John is clearly, unabashedly communicating that love is demonstrated in obedience. In fact, we could say in the negative that really, without obedience, there is not love. At least not in relationship to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we don't necessarily tend to think of love in that fashion, do we? Love is a feeling, love is a warmth, love is a sensation. We're good, perhaps, at loving ourselves, but not necessarily demonstrating love as obedience, particularly when it regards Jesus. There was um, a sad but poignant story recently. About eight months ago, a, a Cessna 150 crashed in Colorado, killing the pilot and the passenger, and uh, it puzzled uh, the National Travel Board for a little while while they investigated the crash because the plane seemed to be in perfectly uh, good working condition. And so as they continued to probe why did this plane crash, they realized that the pilot was wearing a GoPro and took his GoPro and played back the video that he had been recording and had seen that uh, he and the passenger were busy taking selfies in the cockpit of the plane. And the flash apparently disoriented them enough. Apparently this can happen in cockpit and is actually becoming a problem in aviation that you become so disoriented that you can actually crash uh, your plane. So so consumed with self-love that it's actually literally destructive. That's not a bad metaphor for understanding our approach today culturally, that our love is so self-oriented that it is ultimately destructive. It ultimately ends... It ends in a place of death because we're not worthy of that much love, which we'll see kind of as we unpack. Love is obedience is 
is something you begin to get a handle on as soon as you think about marriage for longer than two seconds. When you get married, no one thinks, I'm getting married, I've said my vows, now I'm done, my responsibilities are ended. Or I don't have to actually have to keep working on this. You know, we've crossed the threshold, I'm good to go. No, of course, you have to continue to work on your marriage. You have to continue to work on laboring your spouse, and the spouse has to reciprocate that love for that to actually flourish and grow. You have to be obedient in the sense of uh, submitting your will and your selfish desires to the good and the needs of your spouse. That's the only way that marriage works and flourishes. We realize that love is actually reciprocal in the nature of a relationship. In any relationship, and particularly in our relationship with God, love is something that is... um, Peter Creve, we talked about a phrase a little bit this morning in uh, discipleship in real life, that, that the love in the Bible is uh, perpetually reinforcing. So in other words, as, as I seek to love God, I experience more of God's love. And experiencing more of God's love then enables me to offer more love to Him. And offering even more love to Him then enables me to receive even more love from Him. And in this way, we grow, just like you would grow in intensity and intimacy and real love in the context of a marriage. And so it begs the question, or raises the question, why or how are we not really loving the Father? Which, in the context of our passage, the question then is, how are you not really being obedient to the Father? Or obedient to Christ, right? Lack of obedience communicates and reveals lack of love. You can't say, I love God, and then proceed with a bunch of disobedience. John is telling us here that, no, you don't really love God. You love something else. So what would it mean, as you think about that, all of us, surely, can think of one aspect of our life in which we are not particularly being obedient. One aspect of our life that we love more than we love Jesus What would it mean to take that and to put it in an envelope and seal it and put it away in a drawer and dare to pray as Jesus prayed, not my will be done, but yours be done. Let me be obedient in a ways that I've held back and in that very act dare to experience more love of God the Father than you ever have before. Some of you are going to struggle at some point in the context of considering this passage. And John, are we saying that God's love for us is dependent on our love for Him? And the answer to that is yes and no. John has already said quite clearly that we only know God and are brought into relationship with Him because He approaches us in love. But he's also saying that you cannot understand that you have a relationship with Him that is growing and developing if you aren't pursuing Him in obedience, which is a manifestation of love. If that's not going on, then you're just pretending. And this is Jesus saying, listen, I'm leaving. What is expected of you in my absence? Obey. If you love me, if you're serious about that, then I want you to obey. Because, of course, Jesus knows that's the best thing for the disciples. To what obedience is Jesus calling all of us? We might ask the question, well, what Okay, I have to obey your commands. What have been the commands of Jesus? Well, more than any other in the book of John is is the commandment that we are called 
to love one another as he has loved us. Perhaps that's a good place for you to start. Are you really loving those around you in the same way that Jesus has loved you? Are you willing to wash the feet of your enemy? I was fascinated a little bit by the recent link and felt badly in some ways for uh, Amy Pascal, who is one of the heads of Sony and uh, who went through, a, has had a very difficult season as uh, North Korea reportedly hacked Sony and got into all their databases and started to reveal their information. I was reading a, kind of a, a chronicle of how the scandal unfolded. And it was fascinating because initially things were revealed like salaries and uh, business propositions and different agendas, and people were uncomfortable. It was a little bit embarrassing or awkward, but it wasn't really a big deal. Until and North Korea or whoever was releasing this, um, not all at once. It was over a period of time. Well, eventually they released the bombshell, which was uh, the email of the executives. I thought, what a hard place. Can you imagine if, if today or tomorrow all of your email was released? Every message that you've written, every joke that you've made, Every jab, every hurt that you'd shared was suddenly on the public stage. Uh, more embarrassing aspects. Um, uh, uh, there was an exchange between Ms. Pascal and another executive, uh, which w- apparently they were very disgruntled with Angelina Jolie, who was uh, dragged through the muck, called a spoiled brat, uh, a camp event, and had a rampaging spoiled ego. And on her way to um, to a fundraiser for the president, she engaged a series of banter with another colleague, uh, saying, should I ask him if he liked Django? Uh, referring to Django Unchanged. In response, said, no, ask about 12 years. In response to 12 years a slave. In response, uh, Pascal replied, or the butler choosing three films that highlighted different aspects of African-American experience, to which she had to apologize directly to President Obama in the White House, and Pascal uh, was removed from her job as a result and moved into something else. The reason I share actually some of the details with you of that is is to get a sense of of the, the darkness, the awkwardness, the sin that exists in our, in our heart. Right? Something like email that you, you think is really quite private, isn't going to be shared in any regard, suddenly becomes absolutely public. What would be revealed if your email was put on the table? What would your, you know, if we could, if we could say, what would it look like if we could read the email of your heart? as we're thinking about what it means to love one another in the same way that Jesus loved us, if we read the email of your heart, would it, would it show us anything like love that Jesus demonstrates? Or would it show us lots of images of vicarious violence of people being hurt and images of long rants and articulate things that you have framed in your mind to put down your opponents rather than to love them? 
But Jesus says, listen, if you love me, you're going to be obeying my commands. And the, the most prominent command on the table is love one another as I have loved you. And then we start to peer into our hearts. Is that really what we see? Or do we see something radically different that then demonstrates to us that we're not being obedient at all, which then reveals to us that we don't really love Jesus? That's where we need to get to and what we need to wrestle with in the light of, of this. Why is it worthwhile to take Jesus' word seriously, his command, and actually to pursue obedience and to pursue love in the context of that obedience? Well, there are some pretty great promises attached to these calls for obedience as expressions of love. If you notice, it's repeated three times, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which with each of the three calls to obedience. Look back at 16, which follows immediately 15. The Father will give you another helper. In other words, you will receive the Spirit. In verse 22, Jesus will manifest himself. He will come and be with you. And in verse 23, the Father will love him, and we, meaning both the Father and the Son, will make our home with him. You understand that the the closeness, the intimacy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are on hand for those who are pursuing obedience as a communication of love for Jesus. Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to obey. That's how you're going to know, and I'm going to know that you love me. And in that, there's going to be something wonderful that happens because we, the Trinity, will increasingly draw near to you that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will take up resonance with you. As John says that, Jesus says, I'm in the Father and He is in me, and we're both going to be in you if you're unified to us and pursue this relationship. The closeness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is something that is based and directly tied to intimately the expression of love and obedience that we give the Father. So how close do you feel? Right? Again, let's back up. If, if Jesus is promising that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are going to be close to you as a result of the obedience, which is the result of the love that you actually have for Christ, then you might ask, okay, well, that's a great promise. Am I realizing it? Do I actually feel like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are close to me, like their presence, like they've taken up, re- resided in me? If you say, yes, that's good. If you say, no, I don't really experience that, then we have to go backwards and say, okay, well, what's breaking down in terms of obedience and love? Or how do we misunderstand? And for some of you, you think, well, I, I know, I know this promise, and I, but I don't feel it. I don't really experience a closeness with the Trinity, but I'm obedient. Okay. It's in this place where we have to start to wrestle with the ridiculous notions of American Christian evangelical culture that has reduced obedience to the lowest common denominator. Right? Obedience is, well, I don't drink or I haven't seen an inappropriate movie. I haven't cheated on my wife. That becomes the definition of obedience rather than what John has already put on the table, which is loving one another as I have loved you. We realize that our definitions of obedience get focused on things that we find rather easy, that we can pat ourselves on the back for, rather than being called into a real obedience that reflects deep love for Christ and the complete trust that what He has for us is best. 
And what is obedience if it isn't born of love? Understand how important that question is. Do you realize how often we come to God and we say, God, you don't feel very close. I've been pretty good. And when we say that, what we're effectively saying is, I've been obedient as I understand obedience, and I've understood that my obedience will get me something. And what we've done is construe obedience as something that is wholly divorced from love. And obedience that is wholly divorced from love is nothing other than manipulation. And if you think you can manipulate God, that's going to be very disappointing. Think about it. Think of a person who says, I'm a, is obedient to nation, but doesn't have love for nation. They're, they might obey the speed limit. They might pay their taxes, but they're not going to sacrifice for their nation. A marriage in which someone is obedient, but doesn't really have love. Oh, they're going to take out the trash because they expect dinner to be on the table, but there's not going to be any intimacy, any life given in the midst of that relationship. Obedience without love is simply empty and it's simply destructive. It it shows us that we've entered into a relationship purely on pretense, pretense of what we're going to get. We make it a relationship of economy rather than a relationship of love. Think about how messed messed up that is. Jesus lays down his life. He washes the feet of Judas. He loves Peter despite being denied. He goes to the cross for you. You say, yes, Jesus, I love you, but then your lack of obedience reveals that you don't really love him. You pretended obedience because of what you perceived to get from him rather than from actually being in relationship to him. And then we say to ourselves, I feel so distant. I don't know why we're alienated. Maybe because what little obedience there is is just pretend. And a sad excuse for a lack of really pursuing love in relationship with him. Do you not see the the love of Christ demonstrated in these words in John? Look at verse 18. Jesus is leaving. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. And in verse 27, he says, Peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. How difficult that would have been for the disciples. Jesus wasn't supposed to depart, but here he is. I'm leaving. But listen, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will still be present with you. I'm giving you the Spirit as a helper. My peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. My goodness, so difficult. So difficult today. In the midst of a world that is utterly unpredictable, where we we confess faith in Christ and believe in His purposes, but so seldom understand those purposes, we then are expected to not let our hearts be troubled and to not let them be afraid. How can that be? Is not our trouble and our lack of peace and fear so much the result of an inability to really love God? Love Him in the way that we truly trust ourselves to Him. Love Him in a way in which our trust and and, and devotion and confidence in Him is so great that, that trouble and fear seem very distant. Uh, someone lent to me um, a fun movie, which being like 20 years old, 
I have no apologies, and I'm not even spoiling the ending, but it was an issue this morning in discipleship in real life, and I continue to feel very unfairly um, charged with ruining movies. So the movie is Cinderella Man, which is hysterical because every you, I was sat down to watch the movie, and uh, it's a great film. Um, everyone's so young, which I... You sit, Russell Crowe and, and Paul Giamatti and uh, Renee Zellweger um, are all strikingly young. You realize time has passed without even noticing it. Uh, but the story, it, it, this uh, Cinderella Man tells the story of James Braddock. James Braddock is someone that I had never heard of, but what an amazing story. He uh, was in the mid to late 20s. He was a very prominent boxer and was living a very successful life in New Jersey. And uh, the movie then fast-forwards uh, three or four years into the Depression. And he, much like everyone in the country, or many people in the country, lost virtually everything. He sold everything off. He lives in a squalid basement with his family and kids. And um, can't, it, what, fighting wasn't going well. He was, he was kind of had fallen out of... Um, he hadn't had any successful fights, and so was living in, in utter poverty. Couldn't keep on electricity or gas. He couldn't get medicine for his kids. And there's one great scene in the movie where his child goes out and steals a salami from the local meat market. And Russell Crowe, who's playing James Braddock, uh, has to have a conversation with him, but he realizes in the midst of the conversation uh, why his boy went out and stole the meat. They had cousins or friends, and their children were sent away to live with other relatives because the parents could no longer provide uh, to actually feed the children. And you think, well, of course, if, if the boy is afraid of being sent away because there's not enough food, he's gone out to make sure that there's enough food so he won't be sent away. And it's very much the situation. You've already had scenes where... James Braddock doesn't eat so that his children can eat. Braddock gets down on his knees with his boys and he says, listen, I would never allow you to be sent away. And the movie goes forward and you think, well, that's sweet, but then things are a little bit out of control and, and it appears that the children are, are going to be sent away. And Braddock is a man of, um, of, of high principles, Incredibly respectable and um, not willing to to make exceptions, even though life is hard. And so, in this moment of desperation, when his kids are about to be sent away, he goes to his his former fight managers and people who are still doing well in the midst of the depression. He goes to a a bar, a hangout where they gather. So all of the people that he knew and respected him. And uh, with tears in his eyes and in utter humility, he begs. Something that you can barely, you barely understand how difficult that would be for a person like Braddock. And I found myself as we're watching the movie and, and seeing him stand up and ask for help, I, I, without even thinking about it, I, I heard myself whisper, how humiliating. But he goes around with his hat in his hand. But why does he do that? He does that, he humiliates himself in order that his children might be spared. In order that they won't be sent away, but that they will continue to live with their mother and father. 
And what kind of love and obedience do you think that then cultivates in their children? When he gives them the lecture on not stealing the salami and telling him that, no, I will love you and make sure that you reside with me. I'm, I'm betting that boy didn't steal another salami after understanding what his father did on his behalf. And that is what your father does on your behalf. We live in fear and with troubled hearts because we struggle to believe that, yes, really God will provide everything that is necessary to undo everything that is wrong. But in the cross, in Christ, God has humbled himself far more radically than James Braddock ever did so that you might be guaranteed to not be sent away. And it's when we understand that love that obedience becomes not chore but privilege. Not not onerous, but life. Because it's through obedience that we experience more and more of the love that God has on hand through His Son. What keeps you from either being obedient or feigning obedience? Both are signs that you don't really love God. And both are things that need to be uprooted by the love of God. So as we go, even now, pray. Confess. Repent. But as you walk out of here today, make a commitment this week. Even if you choose just one thing in which you know you are not obedient in, realize that it stands between you experiencing more of the great and never-ending love of God. And put it away. Put it away that you might know more of that love. Let's pray. God, your love is unfathomable. And we can only take attempts, uh, make attempts to, to describe the humiliation that you endure so that we might be um, ensured a place in your family. And for that, we are so grateful and so moved and um, And yet we recognize that our lack of obedience reveals to us our lack of love for you. So we pray this morning that your love would wash over us anew. We ask that we would again be in in wonder, in amazement at the cross, and that that love would kindle within us uh, a love that pursues obedience and an obedience that knows in turn more of you. We thank you that you take up residence with us and pray that it would be all the more so. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.